welcome to another episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I will be your host for today, possibly tomorrow, maybe next week. Because very, very soon autumn is hitting and oh my goodness, aren't we glad that autumn is hitting at the moment. Because it's still very, very hot and muggy. Um, In the past, we have spoken to content creators. We have spoken to... um, game designers, game developers. We've spoken to a lot of people in the media who've gone as far as speaking to manufacturers. But once the dust settles, once the Kickstarter finishes, once you've sat there and your credit card has been processed and your details have been taken, how, how does it all get, how does it all fit into place? So it made sense to actually maybe ask somebody who might be a little bit in the know so um, I kind of scurried about and I, I asked some important, intelligent people and I also asked Vaughn Reynolds and Vaughn said, why don't you speak to um, Chandler Copenhaver from Crowdox? And uh, he, I said, okay. So joining me today is Chandler from Crowdox. So hello, Chandler. How you doing? I'm very, very good. I'm very, very good. good. How's yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. That's good. That's good. Um, as I say, the reason that we got you on tonight, I think you're kind of like one of the last pieces in what we would call the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter kind of puzzle. As in, you know, when everybody is, the excitement is kind of, um, has reached its peak and the mm. game is funded and then it's kind of what happens next. But yeah. in We're Not Wizards tradition... We obviously um, we want to find out a little bit about your good self, kind of first of all. Now, um, for people who are joining us for the first time, thank you very much for joining us. The reason that we do this is because we're almost at episode 200 now, and um, I just need to get to episode 200, and then I can sit back and do nothing for the rest <laughs> of my years. And as I say, the second reason, the second reason that I'm doing this is because um, because I'm just a nosy person. And I want to ask Chandler lots of nosy questions and see if he'll, you know, answer them or not. Um, do you want to start off by telling us kind of a little bit about, obviously, yourself, you know, how, how you kind of got involved in, in the kind of the, the hobby in the first place? Absolutely. So the, uh, the for me, crowdfunding, the whole Kickstarter world really started uh, uh, when I was uh, it's before I got married and, and I was a single dude and, uh, my buddy introduced me to, um, he, he showed me this, this, uh, watch, the smart watch. It was back, mm-hmm. I think 2012. It was the Pebble, the Pebble smartwatch. Yeah. And, uh, so the, the first one, I think there's been quite a few, but, uh, but so back then he showed that to me and, and, uh, showed me, uh, kind of told me about crowdfunding and, uh, I had been pretty, already pretty active in like new products and things like that, but this was like a whole nother level of getting in and involved with something before it even existed, and that was pretty cool. Um, so uh, yeah, I ended up backing that that uh, that watch way back in the day, and then oh, about you still got the watch? I still have it, uh, but Does it I didn't. Still work? I, it still works. Um, there's a little glitch in it every once in a while, but. Uh, yeah, surprisingly, it's you know still good. I mean, it was a definitely an experience though, right? Being a backer for the first time, uh, 
for that type of campaign, especially, I mean, high, you know, a technology product. It took me, it took a good year and a half, I think, to get the product. Um, and it was, you know, late by like nine months or more. Um, so yeah. it was a, it was an interesting scenario to be, you know, to experience, but I, I'm definitely the optimist in respect to crowdfunding. So I was, I was stoked no matter what, just to get it. And where did your where did your interest in kind of tabletop come from then? I mean, have you been playing board games for a while? Are you quite new to getting into that side of the hobby? Yeah, actually, I'm. Uh, I've been I've been playing Magic since I was uh, since I was pretty young. Um, I uh, my first memory of of that's that's probably what got me really into the I guess the hobby side of the of the tabletop world. Um, I played Magic quite a bit through as mm-hmm. a junior high kind of age and teenage and then uh um you know played no- numerous games and played Catan and, and all of those games along the way but really diving deeper came through um once I started more heavily working uh, and and also backing things on Kickstarter um started to back remember, a lot more games do you remember what your first kind of game was that you kind of got involved in the, the kind of the Kickstarter side of things hmm uh, the first board game, so Secret Hitler was one that I backed, uh, yeah. and, and it, I don't know if that was the first, I would definitely remember that was the biggest, or the, the most prominent, so it kind of sticks out. Um, you know, I backed, backed Joking Hazard, and, and that doesn't really fit in the hobby category, but <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's still an interesting, fun little game. But the no, I, I backed uh, Secret Hitler and then got more involved with uh, more strategy-based games uh, and social deduction games. I mean, started really started diving deeper, um, and especially as I've had the opportunity to work with more creators, a big, it's a huge... Uh, focus and passion for me to get even, you know, to really understand and know the games of the, the creators we work with, not just from a business standpoint or anything like that, but just, uh, you know, I, I absolutely love gaming. So it uh, kind of works out, works out really well. What you play, what are you playing at the moment? Most recently, um, I played a game called um, Aegis. Um, yeah. And uh, so they did a, they did a successful Kickstarter. Uh, my wife and I, took the better part of yesterday uh since yesterday was labor day here in the states and oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah so we so my labor i labored on that that board game and uh <laughs> it was it was a good time it, you know it's a lighter uh, war game and and uh yeah. definitely it was the first time my wife had ever played a war game and she was actually pretty apprehensive um really? but but they yeah she's just like robots i'm not into robots war game i've never played a war game but the you know they they did a good job at making it um, a fairly good entry or gateway game for uh, for war games I think because you know there's the hex uh, board and the hexagonal board and then also it's not very complex uh, at its core so it made it uh, made it really enjoyable we played through we did a two out of three and uh, I'm sad right. to say I'm sad to say that she she destroyed me so. Um, probably deser- deservedly so. She's probably actually a secret war gamer. <laughs> yeah, it's a small pastime in the you know the, the <laughs> wee hours of the with, night. Yeah, maybe worthwhile checking what Facebook group she's kind of posting <laughs> on. 
<laughs> She's kind of secretly laughing away at you. <laughs> Got him. You know, it's one of those Checked things. To play it ages. <laughs> my wife is just good at anything she does, unfortunately, and so wow. I uh, I struggle to win at many games against her. So it's a good yeah. thing. It means that it, I have somebody to challenge me on on some games here and there. Yeah. I mean, have you got quite a reasonable collection of games? I mean, it's a, it's a difficult thing, okay, being involved in the in the kind of the industry that you are, mm. that you'll be seeing probably lots of games on a day-to-day basis, and I'm guessing you get exposure to a lot of games. Is it nice to kind of maybe step away <laughs> a little bit from the tabletop hobby and do kind of do kind of other things, other kind of pastimes and hobbies, since you're kind of this kind of involved in it? For me, it hasn't. I haven't gotten to the point where I've gotten, uh, you know, I need to kind of break away. I know that there's a lot of people, especially, uh, you know, publishers and and designers, that yeah. they're even more entrenched in the actual games themselves than I am. Um, I have the opportunity to also work with projects of every kind, and so I'm not just solely dived into the tabletop world. And so for me, mm-hmm. I see. You know, we, we did have here in, uh, in, uh, I, I live in Utah, Crowdox, we're kind of based all over. Um, we don't really have a, yeah. we don't have a central location or office, but, um, uh, a good number of us are here in Utah. There's a, there was a, uh, conference here called SaltCon in, uh, in Utah. And so that's what I was doing, um, this last weekend. Uh, and, you know, it was nice because I've attended numerous cons this year, but that was the first, that I didn't go to, you know, work, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So I, I was there to mostly just play and, and enjoy, enjoy a bunch of games. And so, um, I always, when I, when I do those though, I have a tendency to be drawn and, and often work, uh, or not work, but often go and, and uh, play a lot of prototypes and a lot of, uh, you know, help play tests and things like that. I, I really enjoy the creative process. Have you, um, have you not thought about putting something together yourself then? Actually, now that you've got a bit. Is yeah. this, this where you give us the exclusive? Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm in the process actually. We're I've got a, I've got a game that I'm working on with my wife and uh, who knows where okay. it will go and it's obviously really horrible and terrible right now, but um, that's <clears throat> we're we're working on something. We thought, you know, we why, why not? Let's let's make something and so we're uh, We'll see where that goes. We're pretty early in the development process, so I'm just interested to to, to think you kind know, of what kind of game you would it's, kind of make. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 going to start light and simple, and and so it's going to be yeah. a, uh, my wife's a she is a chemistry teacher, and oh okay, so she's got some of the skills in that realm, and I've have never taken a chemistry class in my life, so I uh, <laughs> it was a good idea to make a chemistry game. So that's what we're doing. I think I think it's a sense of it's a fascinating thing because because um, I I I did a little bit of chemistry at college, so I am aware of how chemicals and elements and everything bond together, and I think there could be a nice little kind of um, game based all around that kind of joining all the elements together and creating big carbon chains and scoring off the back of them. And I hope I've just not nicked your game idea. Yeah. There, but, um, <laughs> there's also, I think there's all sorts of fun opportunity around themes like that. So mm-hmm. you can go light and you can go heavy and we're going to go light on this first one. Just Oh, the first one. So there's other ones planned then. Well, there's no plans, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's by, by the nature of doing it once, it's the first. So yeah, 
I suppose so. I suppose so. I suppose so. Has it, um, I mean, be involved in the kind of the crowdfunding scene itself? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things you see talking about kind of like Kickstarter again and, and again and again is, oh, there's so many projects coming through on the tabletop scene. Um, have you seen yeah. in your time involved in that scene, has it been a bigger skew towards that area? I mean, a lot of people are talking about, well, the big money is in tabletop. There's projects that are doing millions and millions of dollars now. So, I, I mean, have you, have you had to, when you're approaching the business side of things, yeah. are you having to adapt to deal with that particular particular type of client or do you are you just you just kind of try and treat every client again you know the same basically it's interesting so having the so the the first couple of years that i that i worked on and and worked with uh kickstarter campaign creators i did some indiegogo as well but mostly kickstarter um the 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 focus actually was on non-tabletop so i actually for the first couple of years Mm. and this was before crowdox um, I was working and helping people um, with their marketing and some other aspects. And when I was doing that, uh, we we really struggled to um, see success with tabletop games. And at the time, it was a frustration, and we didn't understand why. And I, you know, that mm-hmm. I, I I really wanted to get into that scene. It's a, being a passion of mine, and uh, we didn't see the same type of impact and results. And and come to find it, you know, as I dove more into the to the community and I got more involved in some of the groups and some of the things there, um, I learned a lot and found that number one, the tabletop community is by far the most impactful, most generous, and most uh, <clears throat> most committed to the platform than any other one category. And mm-hmm. the, the, the biggest reason, I think, is because of the people. No, number one, the individuals involved are, and just the nature of tabletop is that we're together, we're playing, we're, we're not, there's a lot less competition. Um, there is competition, but it's not, definitely not the same as, you know, somebody that launches a watch and somebody that else launches a watch. There's no, yeah. there's going to be no collaboration between those two individuals, those two groups. Um, and the same is true with, you know, virtually all these other products that are out there. But with, with games, you don't have that. There's very little of that that happens where you have somebody that, you know, they, they're very hard against, you know, hard with a, an NDA and requiring somebody to sign something before they talk about it. Um, there's a lot more openness. And so, uh, it's the power of the community, which that's what Kickstarter is all about. It's, it's about the community, uh, that has allowed this category to, grow massively and it's also the reason why it's so successful now there is the discussion a lot of people say well the bubble is going to burst and Mm. we can't keep having you know these kinds of uh, this kind of growth well it's not really true if you have if you consider uh if you consider that if the base of the let's say that there's a, a you know a finite number of hobby board game backers that are currently backing, uh, and there's probably data that we could pull somewhere uh, on that number. If that number stays the same, then I, I I actually do think that it could, you know, eventually the bubble could burst. But my from my experience and from what I'm seeing is that that number is increasing. There are more people that are getting involved, and there are more people that are playing games and and kind of coming back to the table, if you will. 
because if we look at the trends just on a on a, a broader scale of board games in general, we see you know where board games were. I mean, especially before video games existed, or when video games were really early, um, or even I mean, when I was a kid, I played a ton of Risk, and we played a ton of board games um, with my buddies. And part of the reason is just you know there wasn't as much technological competition. Um, and then, you know, we, then we had the internet come into play. And then as soon as that happened that, you know, everyone jumped on playing online games. And now we have like this trend of people that are just kind of burnt out of online play, or at least doing it so much because it, you know, when I, I think back to playing video games, which is, I was a definitely a bigger video gamer back in the day than board games. And, mm-hmm. um, but when we played games together, it was, you know, you're sitting with your buddies on the couch and you're hitting each other between, you know, and, and watching each other's screens and all that fun stuff. And, uh, you know, cause it was a shared experience and, you know, now Fortnite and all that, you're, you're not even able, you're not even capable of watching or, or playing a game split screen anymore on a lot of these games. Um, and I mean, so you- bring back, bring back time splitters too. Yeah, I mean, that's right. All or asking. that's all I'm asking. Yeah, bring back 007. I, mean, I don't need Goldeneye because Goldeneye looking at it now looks like um, <laughs> it looks like so much boxy cardboard rubbish. And everybody yeah. just come out recently and said if you used Ob Job, you were cheating. I think the thing with the tabletop scene is that um, it's the it's a viable route to market. Even the video game crowdfunding scene. Mm-hmm. And you'd be able to correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. It's kind of still seen as a an edgy, wedgy, kind of icky, sticky kind of way to market. I mean, take mm. um, Shenmue 3, yeah? Right, yeah. Crowdfunded, really, really popular, mm-hmm. did a lot of money. It, where is it? We, we, we kind of we don't know, and it relied on an awful lot of the passion. Mm-hmm. And I think what that happens is people will say, well, it's a kind of a one-off, I just kind of want that, and then we'll just kind of see. I think what happens with board games is that you will... Um, Say you've got somebody sitting down and they'll be they'll bring in their like say catacombs or they'll bring in you know they'll they'll bring in the others or they'll bring in no honor among thieves and then the question will be well that that was a good fun game where'd you get that from and it's like well I got it on Kickstarter mm-hmm. and it's like well <clears throat> and I think what that does is that helps introduce people into that side of the hobby and that whole community because let's face it there is a whole kickstarter community mm-hmm. that has evolved around and you'll see the same people turn up again and again and again oh I yeah i remember when i was following it it was like um you know it was like the same five or ten people that were like, maybe you see them in the simon games but you've seen them in like um you've seen them jumping i've seen them jumping on like when like city of kings was out and uh epoch was out in a couple of projects and it was mm-hmm. the same like five or six people kind of turning up and they were saying hello to each other and that seemed to be what they did they kind of went to work they didn't have any other commitments they would come on they would kind of be involved in the kind of the kickstarter scene so i think it's viable to see that kind of grow i think you're right about two products kind of coming on and they would be an absolute competition i think it's a good thing that um it's really difficult to kind of copyright mechanics in board games right and even themes it's like the board game industry seems to be like the movie industry that you'll get two board games that'll appear almost within Uh two or three months of each other (laughs) 
and um, and there'll be exactly the same theme and potentially yep. very close in terms of, of kind of mechanics. It, so that's a whole different thing that's really interesting to me. If you actually, across the board, uh, doesn't matter what category, board game or not, there is something, there is like, you know, somewhere in the, in the uh, you know, the gods of Kickstarter, like the universe somewhere, there there's like something happening that there are people that are completely separated from each other that are in different scenarios that come out with products that are very similar. And it happens yeah. time and time again. I see it at least once or twice a, a, a month. And, you know, I, the first, well, not first one, but one that I re- just recall very strongly, there was a company that came out with a, it was basically a GPS for your bike. And so you would attach mm-hmm. it to your bike, but it would point, all that it would do is you'd set your location of where you want to go. And then it would just point the arrow like a compass of where you, you know, where your destination is. And then it allows you to go any street and then it will just, you know, you're just continually following this arrow until you get there, which was really a cool idea. And I, I thought it was really fun. What it was so crazy though that that idea, there were two products. Two different companies that came out within the same month with the same idea. Yeah. And one did better than the other. And that, you know, the, one of them really struggled and the other one did really, really well. And, yeah. uh, and so it was competition and, and, uh, you know, survival of the fittest in that scenario. And, and in the tabletop world, you can have, it usually doesn't end up being so exactly the same that you can, you know, usually the theme is different, but maybe it has similar mechanics or vice versa. And, yeah. uh, and, and that's where you do have people that are, you know, if you ask any one person, they're, they're backing like five to 10 projects at one time and, uh, the average, right. And, and that's completely different than the, uh, these other categories where most people that don't really back in the tabletop world, they back one to two projects at a time. At the most, yeah. So I think the closest the closest one I've seen recently was um, Dinogenics and Dinosaur Island. Yeah, and I remember um, uh, Richard Keane kind of going on Facebook and saying, "Here's my Kickstarter project," and getting almost stoned <laughs> to death <laughs> by the by the wailing crowd and, and saying that, "Well, it's just just like this, it's just like that," and it's kind of like, oh, "Okay, it's, it's kind of the closest," but both of them. Funded kind of you know Dinosaur Island's obviously on its second Whole. iteration now and it's yeah and yeah. It's, it's funded ridiculously well the second time round with its other additions too it's a whole different animal Di- yeah yeah Dinogenics again it's you know it funded kind of kind of really really well at the time I mean in terms of um, <clears throat> do you do you see a trend in the um, do you see a trend in kind of like the I guess the the cost of the price of pledges actually going up in the tables because one of the, one of the things that um, one of the things I think that I've, I've heard people con- um, comment on recently, and something I've noticed myself, mm-hmm. is that the average pledge now seems to be creeping up above kind of a hundred dollars, where it used to be like you know seventy nine seventy nine dollars. Mm-hmm. Now it seems to be ninety nine dollars. Now it seems to be a hundred and nineteen dollars. I mean, from your view, have you seen? Kind of like an increase in that kind of the base level kind of coming in. Yeah, there is a general like increase going up. But what's interesting, so coming from a non-tabletop Kickstarter world, the average pledge uh, on on projects on Kickstarter was close to one hundred and fifty dollars. That was the 
that's kind of considered like the average mm-hmm. um, pledge on, on a lot of these projects. Coming into the tabletop category, it's, it's interestingly not too far off from that. It's fairly close. Um, and so I think what it's really showing is what, you know, where is the level of, of emotional investment that people have? Because the, the emotional, so the, the amount of money that is spent follows the emotional investment. And so people that are, that's why you see a lot of projects that now are charging, you know, they have additional pledge levels that go up. I mean, I pulled up Dinogenics because you, you mentioned them and, you know, they had a yeah. basic level and then it, it kind of cruised on up to sort of a, um, you know, $100 level. And what ended up being most successful in their case was about a $50 pledge level. Um, yeah. And in other scenarios, you definitely have people spending a lot more. So I, I think uh, there's definitely being an increase, but I think it's matching the demand. Uh, I think just the nature of enough people testing, you know, do you want this or do you want that? And, and it's different in the tabletop categories as well because the profit margins on a board game compared to profit margins on, say, the world's best jacket, um, you know, typically... I keep seeing, I keep seeing adverts for that and I'm just wondering. That's the jacket it, or the world's best. Why it's, is it, why is just, it the world's best? The they're world's always best the world's clean. best. <laughs> it's always the world's it's best. Like, I saw that. I was like, I, you always see that when you're driving through town. It's like, welcome to McSwinney's, the world's the world's <laughs> number one carpet discount. Right. It's like, I don't know how you, I don't even know how you can see. And then they, you obviously they get wise, and then they say it's a, the West Coast's right, right, right. Carpet. And then they go, or that has this feature, <laughs> Utah's number one. Yeah. And then it's no Salt Salt Lake City. Uh, no, this street. Right. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it's funny how that works. Kickstarter is, it's so different. That's why I was telling you, like, the marketing to, of, of, of the world's best jacket and Dinogenics would be, it's completely different. And, and you can't take yeah. the same approach. I couldn't say the world's best dinosaur park building <laughs> game. Like, you would be destroyed in this community. And I, hate, I'd like the, to see that. The hate mail would never stop. And... <laughs> I think it's, I think it definitely is that way because again, the community. Now, the pros and cons of give community. Them, you could give Vaughn, you could give Vaughn that as a project to do. Get him to do <laughs> The world's greatest. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen just the, the world's greatest worker placement game. Oh, yeah. In brackets, in brackets, better than all the other worker placement <laughs> games. That would be, see how he gets. That'd on. be a good little test right there. Uh, you would get, I mean, knowing this community, you get destroyed, right? And the reason, so yeah. it's the pros and cons of this community. And I, I, I speak rather brash sometimes, and some, but, but I, I really don't care. Um, I couldn't be bothered. Like, you know, there's some people in this community that are incredibly sensitive, and they've developed, they've developed their own status quo of how things should be done, and, uh, and, and it really becomes an irritation to me sometimes because somebody says, "Oh, well, you, you shouldn't do it this way because of this." And some of those are sort of categorically true for board games. Um, but just in general, you know, in general, I find it rather interesting and rather annoying, um, sometimes on the, the way that people are. For example, uh, and cause I can't just say that without giving an example. For example, no, I see a lot of backers who are super backers and they have all of these things and they say, Oh, 
you have n- you haven't backed any other campaigns with this uh, with this account, and uh, I'm never going to back you because you don't support creators. Blah blah blah, and they have all these reasons. Yeah. Which you know, if I were to create a campaign today, I would just go and have to fake it and go pledge you know a dollar or whatever and go back five or six campaigns. But nobody's seeing my actual personal account because I'm going to launch, you know, if I launch a Kickstarter campaign, I do it out of a business account and, you know, yeah. set up my taxes, my LLC and everything properly. But you're not going to see that I've backed over 200 campaigns um, just because, you know, the nature of how Kickstarter structures accounts. So it becomes really irritating to me within this community that we do have a lot of you know, a lot of people that are highly sensitive and that you know, want things the way that they want it. And for the creator, from the creator standpoint, uh, you know, it's one of the, it's something I hear quite often that it's, it's challenging to deal with the personalities and the sometimes idiosyncrasies of some of these individuals. Um, and so where the community has its strength, it also has its weakness because those people that share some of those thoughts, or they're very vocal, create sort of uh, subcultures and sub, you know, rules, like a, a set of unwritten rules um, within the culture that can actually sometimes be hurtful to the creator and to, you know, the whole setup, the whole process. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, there are guys that are releasing really really good games that need to do maybe two or three releases because they haven't backed a couple of hundred games mm-hmm. i mean it is a for me i mean i mean personally if i if i'm looking at a project and the person's not backed really anything at all it kind of has me asking questions mm-hmm. it depends because then i'll then i'll have a look at the can the kind of the campaign and look at the quality but then i'll look at kind of social media i mean i think um but I think in general, in terms of the crowdfunding scene, if the first time that you're finding out about a campaign is when the campaign is live, I would argue that you've maybe not done the best job in the first place of making sure people are aware of your campaign. You know, if you're kind of saying, okay, this is, if people are only aware of you now that you're on Kickstarter, as opposed to being aware of you kind of three, four months ago. Mm-hmm. I think that you maybe need to kind of maybe reassess where you are in terms of your of your marketing. I mean, I I still you know I we get a lot of creators on the show, and we get a lot of people that are on the show that they are we're speaking to them during the campaign itself. Yeah. And some of them are funded and they're ready, and some of them are trying to create kind of noise, and it can be really really difficult to kind of create that noise and put that kind of um, kind of different different hat on. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And that's where I say, like, it's the, the greatest, uh, benefit and advantage in this community, uh, or, or, or within this, uh, this sector, I guess, is, is the community, specifically the people and the backers and, and everyone involved. But again, that does come with its own set of interesting challenges. Because if we talk about, you know, it's really interesting looking at trends. And if I look at trends of board games and tabletop games on Kickstarter versus other types of projects, they are so vastly different. For example, uh, you know, just the other day I was speaking with somebody that, you know, they have a, a campaign on Kickstarter. It's a flashlight and, you know, they're about a week and a half in and they have about 40 days to go or maybe they're two weeks in and they expect to raise, you know, they, they can, they're seeing daily increases 
in where many places, you know, many projects that are tabletop kind of anticipate a really large lull or, or drop in the campaign. Yeah. Um, they're actually yeah. seeing day to day increases or at least maintaining good daily consistent averages. And these are projects that launched with no pre-marketing, um, but are doing good and effective and heavy marketing during the campaign. And, uh, it's definitely a big difference that, that you see is that, you know, if you look at a tabletop game and if it's not doing decently well within day two, you know, most people say, well, it's a lost cause. You know, hopefully it just barely ekes by and hits a hundred percent. Um, but if you, do you think, do you think that's a bad thing? Do you think that's more of a cultural thing than an actual realism thing? Oh, Cause I've had this oh, discussion. Sure. I've had this discussion lots of times where people are talking about, and, and, and I mean, it must be, it's even been something that's become kind of a, kind of more popular in the last kind of eight months where mm-hmm. people are saying, well, these guys haven't funded in the first 48 hours, so that means they're going to kind of struggle. And I remember, I mean, the first project I was involved in was Heavy Steam, which was four, five years ago, maybe. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that just toddled along and got funded. Yep. And then the next one just, again, shimmied along, you know, soft shoe shuffling along creating you know getting the dollars now i'm going on to places where they're into the third day and people are kind of like raising their arms aloft <laughs> to the sky and going it's only 75 percent funded <laughs> to the ark to the ark right <laughs> gather the women and children we shall never make it and it's like mate you got like 27 days to go <laughs> yeah like, but you know it's, it's just kind of like one of these, these it- strange things i does it not force people to 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 end up with ridiculously low kind of goals as in funding goals? It's the irony. That- yeah, isn't it? I mean, it's ironic, right? I need backers to get to 100%, but nobody yeah. will back me until I'm 100%. It, it, yeah. it, it, it's a it's a catch-22. It's a great, and- it's a great show, Marks, isn't it? I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that wouldn't have me as a member <laughs> yeah. um, kind of thing. You can't, that kind of weird you can't be a member until you're a member. Yeah. It's, it's that whole like argument just, that a lot of millennials have around, you know, you can't get a job unless you have experience, but you can't have experience until you have a job. Like, <laughs> exactly. Entry level sales guy, at least five and a half years experience, B2B business development. Yeah. <laughs> That's soft skills. Right. You know, I mean, started selling when he was 12 and a half. Started okay. selling rocks to their buddies. But yeah, it's... Like, it's it's completely a cultural thing, and I think mm. it's it comes from the fact that tabletop backers back tabletop projects, and Kickstarter actually has. There's a lot of people in the tabletop community that aren't really aware of the the fifth tab. What I mean by the fifth tab is if you go to any Kickstarter campaign, there's a tab called community. I it, it surprises me how many people I talk to that I'm like, hey, click on that tab and let's look at that, and they don't even know yeah. about it. But if you go to a Kickstarter campaign, and I'm still on Dinogenics, but if you go to that campaign and you click on Community, which is the tab there, it opens up and shows how many backers came from outside of Kickstarter, like are brand new, first time to the platform, and how many yeah. are returning backers. And it's not like the most valuable data set, but it's really interesting to see trends. Because if we look at Dinogenics, for example, there's 2,600 backers that were returning backers and only 125 that are first timers. Now... If we look at that 125 and we probably break it down, that's probably like, you know, ha- you know, around half of that's probably his like 
grandma and his aunt and his like sister and you know a bunch of mm-hmm. friends and family that that have never done Kickstarter. Um, but other than that, you don't get a ton of uh, new backers for tabletop projects. Very rarely do you see a you know a big ratio or a, a, a more favorable ratio to the new backers. Well, if you look at uh, if you the, the only exception to that is if you look at IP campaigns. Um, like if you look at something that they, you know, they utilized an IP and they're pulling from other Dark places. Souls. Dark Souls is a Dark great, Souls great example. Is a massive, massive one. Yeah. And it was interesting to see the, um, one thing that was mentioned about the Dark Souls board game was the, the kind of the relative toxicity of the community on there because it was obviously people who weren't used to dealing in a crowdfunding. Mm-hmm kind of waiting for a product kind of concept that were kind of like saying we were promised this six months ago we demand the head yeah (laughs) of the head of design it's like mate if you have his head you know they're not going to be able to finish the game right but it it was kind of interesting yeah i mean i see i remember going through i remember going through the comments chandler and and reading about the first 15 and then kind of going and putting on (laughs) Going and putting on something different instead, you know, just to... Yeah, I mean, even that one's like an exceptional example, but you look at that and the, the ratio is always better for those. Um, but what's interesting, yeah. uh, one of the reasons why this trend is interesting, though, is you look at other products on Kickstarter, which, by the way, we're brothers and sisters, right? Like, the, 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 a lot of times the tabletop community considers themselves their own thing, but they're we're fighting the same battles in different categories. And... What's interesting is there are projects that have more new backers than returning backers. In fact, there was one that I worked with. It was a, a campaign called Maluna. It was a uh, um, a cooler campaign, really cool project. Um, the product mm. is is phenomenal, and it doesn't make that creaking noise that all coolers make. It was like genius, <laughs> really, really, really uh, well, good design. But if you look at their backers, you know they had like. 2,000 backers, some odd backers, but for like 1,500 of them were new backers and only 500 or so were, were returning backers. And Yeah, but uh, I don't think there's a hobby for that, is there? Do you know what I mean? You don't see people going to the cooler club on a Friday. Correct. Yeah, there's, <laughs> not, there's not like a gang of people that are hanging out. Well, <clears throat> that's sort of true. And then you actually look at how, <laughs> how he did that. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I got with... Uh, I got to know Scott, the the creator, and uh, we talked about like so how you know how to do it. And uh, in his case, he created a, an incredibly powerful um, Facebook group. He spent a couple thousand dollars um, building a, a Facebook group that has, <clears throat> I think, as of today, I'll have to look at its actual numbers. But I mean, at the time, it, it had like ten thousand um, people in that group. And, uh, which was actually super impressive. Yeah, it looks like he's roughly around like 12,000 even today. Um, but what was really cool about his group is that there was a lot of organic sharing and people saying, you know, check out my cooler and they're showing a picture on their boat and in their, you know, they're going out camping. And, um, anyway, there's just a community that he, he was successful at building a community around his product, which is different than the tabletop, which, already has a community just built around tabletop. Um, and so it's definitely a different challenge that they face, uh, you know, with those kinds of products. But I think there's some similarities we can learn from. 
And, uh, one of which is anytime that we have a project, uh, you know, that we have, that we're bringing people to, you know, we, if we rely too heavily on the, the existing community, that can, mm. that can hurt us. And, you know, we need to build our own community. We also need to find people that, uh, you know, are outside the community and, and bring them in. And that's where everyone benefits. Anytime we have one of these IP campaigns, there's a lot of people that sort of get frustrated or complain. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, ta- of, of the IP campaigns because they bring new people into the community. And yeah. anytime that happens, it, it just benefits the whole community itself. Here's a, here's a question for you. Um, in terms of the guys that chuck in a buck, yeah, and I'll hold, I'm holding up both my hands at the moment and um, waving about my fabulous rings. Um, <laughs> as far as you've seen, have you seen, is that paying dividends to kind of um, creators that run that style of campaign where you offer the pound or the dollar backing to get involved and to stay updated with the campaign and then once the campaign's finished and then they're on to kind of the after the after sales side of things do you see from i mean and you you'll know this do you see like a decent uptake or is as far as you're concerned is it always worthwhile kind of having a kind of like a, a kind of a pledge manager kind of situation afterwards mm-hmm. did you get do you, is there a big uptake i mean i know I know of some. I I have spoken to a couple of guys who said yes, absolutely, because what happened was that we ended up getting an extra, you know, fifteen pledges, or we ended up getting an extra thousand dollars, or we ended up getting fifteen hundred dollars, or mm-hmm. it turned it from being a project that was a loss into a project that was a success. Yeah. So, if you do, you see that you know in the background, because I take it you, you obviously you would have metrics on that. Is that would you say that's is, is that a kind of a decent thing to consider if you are going to be running the campaign to actually have a kind of a dollar pledge level so people can kind of join in? I always recommend creating a pledge level specifically for it. And there's an, there's actually quite a few reasons why. But the first and main reason is simply lowering the barrier to entry. Lowering the barrier to entry is just is how you be successful in e-commerce in general, any form of online sales. The less clicks you have, the more successful the conversion will be. That's just nature of human behavior. And so yeah. if I have provided somebody lower barrier, which is you know, even though the amount of money I'm spending for a $1 pledge and a $100 pledge is actually zero still because you're not charged till after, even though that that's yeah. the case, psychologically, there is a difference. And that is the reason why people don't back on projects that aren't 100% funded because there's a psychological barrier. There's, yeah. and, and the same thing goes for a $1 pledge. I feel like the barrier to me is lower, especially because... I've probably had the experience of forgetting about a higher pledge and not, you know, not getting out of it or something. So there, there's low commitment. Having, uh, having that pledge level there for that reason is key. The second reason is if you have that pledge level there, it also actually makes it easier for them to pledge. If you look at the way that Kickstarter is designed as well as the app, the Kickstarter app, which I have backed campaigns through the app before, um, there's not, there's not actually an option through the app 
for me to select a no reward pledge level. There is on the on the computer, but not on the app. Mm. And so as a backer on the app, or if I'm re- looking at a project on the app, uh, which I think somebody did data on that once, and the number was somewhere around a quarter of pledges came through the app, if I remember correctly, um, which is a pretty decent number. The uh, in, in that, um, if I can get somebody to pledge and at least subscribe by doing that, you know, that's a value to me. That's a benefit to me. Um, so as a creator, I think it's a, a no-brainer to adding it for those reasons alone. Now, yeah. from the perspective that I have of CrowdOx, which is we're, you know, we're a pledge management software. We help post-campaign organize the orders, organize the details and all the pledges. From that perspective, there's also a value as well. The, the main value comes that we, so we actually have a direct API sync with Kickstarter. Um, mm-hmm. you, you may have seen CrowdOx as a collaborator on campaigns. And the reason why is because Kickstarter actually created the fulfillment permissions for collaborators, specifically based on our, our requests. We, we kind of worked on that with them. And um, so we have a good relationship with those guys. And they put that together so that we can gain access to the information that's pertinent to us. We don't need everything else, but we can grab the, the fulfillment-related um, data and uh, and then sync that directly into the software. And that's super, super helpful for the creators um, for numerous reasons. But the um, <clears throat> when it syncs that over, it actually syncs over all of the pledge levels um, and, and brings them into a, sh- a page that they can see and view from one page all of their pledge levels, how many backers are in each pledge level. And then once they've kind of coordinated the software, they can see how many items are being basically potentially shipped to each of those pledge levels. And, um, <clears throat> and so functionally within the, the structure of, of how that works, it's typically easier to deal with a, a pledge level in that respect. One of the reasons why, if I'm a, uh, a $1 backer, for example, you can yeah. still set it so that there is uh, shipping. Um, a lot of people don't know, but you they have three options when you're creating pledge levels. You can create it as a no shipping, uh, a shipping to specific countries, or a shipping worldwide. And yeah. if you select shipping worldwide, but then put a $0 amount for the worldwide, um, it doesn't show them any dollar amounts, or it doesn't even show them $0, but it will, it will allow you to collect a... Uh, uh, a location, an address, or not an address, uh, collect a country um, from the Kickstarter <clears throat> drop-down box. And um, yeah, yeah. and so that later within CrowdOx, that's valuable um, information. It helps you sort things better and all that jazz. But So there's kind of like the, the really practical reason, but then there's also like the, the marketing reason and, and you know how it benefits the campaign. Um, the other benefit I forgot to mention as a part of those first two is as a uh, as a new backer, let's say I'm going into a project and I want to back a campaign. If I see that somebody else has, you know, that there's a one dollar pledge level that has 341 other people that have backed for a dollar, well, yeah, peer pressure jumps in and says, "Well, why am I not doing it?" Right? And yeah. I think that's a benefit to the creator as well. So, from the creator's perspective, yeah. I'm a vote to pretty much have it all the time. And and there's a few negatives that people bring up. I don't really. Those negatives don't outweigh the benefits from from my perspective. I think the other thing I think the other thing is as well is if you are 
kind of signed up for notifications, then what will happen is that you'll get an email when somebody that you know kind of backs a game, mm-hmm. but you're never told the actual amount. So if you, you know, sometimes people will just chuck in a buck just to follow along progress, but what will happen is that will, that's potentially kind of free marketing because if that then goes to the 25 or 30 people that are following this person, mm-hmm. then they all get emails and it kind of draws them to kind of look at that as well. So it's kind of like an, it's kind of like an interesting, it's interesting to see how Kickstarter itself is evolving. So it's creating, it's almost like its own miniature marketing tools to mm-hmm. help people kind of continue to market and continue to, to kind of, to kind of grow. Um, from your point of view, I mean, how did, how did you get involved in, in kind of like CrowdOx? I mean, what's the, what's the kind of the story behind that, Jandler? So I got to know the CrowdOx team. CrowdOx been around for actually quite a while, been around for, I think, coming up on six, five or six years. And uh, it's been around, but kind of in the background, never, didn't really grow. Um, I got introduced and met with the the two founders of CrowdOx, Nathan and Aaron, and they both are software software developers. They've created CrowdOx from ground up, um, really pretty much just the two of them. And, um, so, I mean, they're incredibly good at that aspect. Um, and I, I saw so much potential having done this for so long. And to be honest, the, my, my real, um, intention or not intention, my real, uh, uh, I guess reason why I was like, oh, CrowdOx is awesome. I want to be involved is because I, I, I wanted to be a part of that next step and that full like experience of a, of a campaign that is now successful They've achieved success on the crowdfunding campaign, but now they are confronted with what I would consider the much more challenging and hard part of the campaign, which is everything else. It, 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 from, yeah. from what I, you know, Kickstarter is kind of the sexy part, right? You're raising money. Yes. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like cool stuff going on and you're, you know, it's really exciting. But as soon as that campaign ends, it's hard. Like there's, there's not as much excitement. You now have people like kind of, with a you know the expectation starts to really creep in and people get start getting grumpy for whatever reason and and then you happen to have you know now you have to go and manufacture which is something that is really foreign um, there's a lot of board game creators and designers that that's what they're good at and they enjoy but then you get to the part of actually making something and going to China or getting molds done yeah. or you know there's a lot of sales sales tax and yeah, logistics and all boxes that stuff. and it's you know, very unsexy, and, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. um, <clears throat> as weird as it is, I wanted to get involved with the unsexy part, mainly because I think that there's a lot of need. There's a lot of uh, need to have more success with this because I, I would always, it would always frustrate me um, when I would see a creator that did a great job on Kickstarter and they raised so much money and they had so much success and then they completely fell apart after the fact. And sometimes yeah. you just can't avoid that because sometimes the, the business acumen that a person has does not match their level of success. So that you just, you know, you can fake it till you make it. And, and there's a lot of people that do that well, but there's some people that just crumble. And uh, yeah. and so I'd, I'd love the idea of getting involved with that aspect and, you know, helping a success actually f- completely become a success. Because for my eyes, you know... Kickstarter is the, it's, it, while it is a cool creative platform, 
it's not really what it is. It's actually a business creating platform, or it could be. Um, it can be a platform that allows somebody that is, you know, they have a nine to five job and they just love board games and they want to create one. So they make one and then it does really well. And then they realize that they could actually make this their career. And, uh, and then, so you have these people, uh, for example, I spent some time this weekend with, uh, with Ryan Lockett of uh, Red Raven Games. I mean, that guy is yeah. amazingly talented. Um, just, I mean, the artwork that he can pr- produce is just ridiculous. But um, <clears throat> he's a normal, you know, a- I wouldn't call him an average Joe, but he's a normal guy that uh, has, you know, some talents and he's pushed, put himself, applied himself to those talents and created a business out of that. And, um, that comes with its own set of, of frustrations. And so the, uh, you know, with CrowdOx, we can help alleviate some of the headache and manual labor and frustration of, of little, little aspects, um, of that process and, uh, and let them kind of focus on things that they are good at and that they need to get done. Um, and that's something I really enjoy. It's been really kind of fun. So you, I mean, you're actually out there then providing them with a little bit of kind of support. I mean, if somebody says to you, well, how do I work this out? Do you say, well, listen, you can, here's the resource you can go to. Have you ended up kind of as a business kind of building up a knowledge base? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I work with businesses who sell on kind of Amazon, okay? Mm-hmm. So I'll get somebody that comes along and says, okay, I'm not sure of the VAT or the tax ramifications and rules for selling into Germany. And now I, as a professional, I'm not going to turn around and say, well, you know, get over 30,000 euros and then you have to register for VAT in Germany. I'm going to say, tell you what, here is an email address, go and email this person and they are a VAT specialist and they will tell you everything that you kind of need to know. Yeah. Are you in that kind of situation where you're able to say, well, listen, if I can't get the answer, I'm not going to guess, but I do know somebody that is involved in, say... The shipping side of things, or I know somebody that can deal with getting you some boxes, or this is how you can deal with this kind of situation. Do you can kind of offer <clears throat> help in that kind of respect as well? Yeah, I uh, I very much consider myself, my role, and what I do more along the lines of consulting than you know than than sales for CrowdOx in particular, because essentially we're saying, look, here's a here's an option. That is going to resolve uh, and alleviate challenges, and then mm-hmm. with that comes lots of questions, and all of these questions are very project specific. Uh, like you're saying, there's some things that you're like, well, I don't know the answer okay. to that. Like you're, you know, you need to talk to the right person. And so <laughs> I, I th- that that's something I actually enjoy doing is is sort of some matchmaking and and you know getting people connected to fulfillment companies or you know even more recently I got a guy that he didn't understand how you know, account, uh, accrual accounting worked so that, you know, he can launch his campaign at the end of the year and still not have to pay taxes till the following, you know, until he ships. Yeah. And yeah, some, yeah. some people don't even know about that stuff. And so I, you know, day in and day out, that's, those are things that I'm, uh, helping people with and I absolutely love it. Is it becoming a bit more of a competitive kind of market i mean in terms of what you're offering i mean there's obviously there are other there are other people out there that do what you do and uh, i won't mention them for fear of offending you sir 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you've got. I've got to ask the question. How do you talk about? How do you talk about pledge managers <laughs> when one of your competitors is called called pledge, pledge manager? manager. <laughs> it's kind of like what do you say? I'd like to. Um, it's like saying to people, um, "Are you satisfied with your Hoover?" <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you're you're spraying Windex, and it's not called Windex. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no or drinking y- it, depending what. Night well, it is. yeah, depending where you are, right? <laughs> I guess they do that in your country. Um, no, I. It is interesting, and there is, of course, competition, and of course, as many people would would probably say, like competition's a good thing, and I actually agree. And we don't. You know, I don't really have much to say uh, on either of the two other. I really only consider that we have about two other competitors, uh, Pledge Manager, as you mentioned, and Backerkit. And, uh, yeah. you know, both are good companies. Um, both are legit services. They offer, you know, they offer different uh, uh, different features, but most of them are actually, they're going to solve some of the same things that we do. Um, the, the difference is, and as, as we try to compare, the, there's, you come down to two different, uh, two different types of differences. One difference is, the, uh, I guess the value proposition. So features, you know, all the little details of the, how the software functions, stuff like that. Those things do have variations between the three. Um, and, uh, as I said, all three are going to get you to the same result usually. Um, but not necessarily with the same experience. And we've Mm -hmm. tried to make a major focus on our software being a very powerful solution um, it doesn't, it's not very complex and it also, so, uh, one of the two are, are highly complex and can, can leave some challenges, uh, for the creator within setting it up and also managing things while the other, um, kind of relies heavily on, uh, itself, basically it's its own team to help support and, and do all of the setup and all of the exports and all, you know, everything related. What we've tried to do mm-hmm. is sort of find a middle ground. And, and Crowdox, we're kind of a middle ground between these two services um, uh, as, as we try to compare them. A lot of people are kind of recognize that pricing-wise, we've priced ourselves um, to be very competitive. We're not looking for a percentage of the campaign funding total. Um, you know, we're, we're very reasonable in the pricing model with a per-backer fee and a, and a percentage of what we help more help raise mm-hmm. that's extra um but the so that's that's a competitive advantage a lot of people really enjoy our pricing model and how that kind of breaks down for them um the the other thing though is comes down to sort of the the means by which we do things we we're invested in this in this space we are very interested in the creators um, you know, we grew just like most of our customers did out of a garage kind of thing. We, you know, built on the side as like a, a, a side hustle until we eventually grew Crowdox big enough that, um, we could jump on board and, and actually now have a team of like 12 people full time. And, um, and so <clears throat> we've kind of gone through that entrepreneurial experience that most of our customers have gone through or are going through. And, yeah. um, and, that reflects in how we interact with the, with everyone that we work with. Um, you know, it, it hopefully shows well to, to those individuals. So you don't, you don't become a number in kind of a factory, uh, you know, process. Uh, but instead we, we, we really work very hard to tailor 
and, and, and to uh, not necessarily tailor the software, but tailor the experience to each creator. And, um, and that's kind of an important part of what we do. Um, and as part of that, you know, part of our fee structure has been basically taken off. We, we have a, a $300 software access fee. Sometimes it's anywhere from $250 to $300, but that fee we don't ever really charge as a set upfront fee. We trade it for, for copies of the games, basically. And uh, mm-hmm. that's important to us because we want to be champions for the projects we work for. We want to have, you know, like I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, is you know I, I'm trying to play the games of, of uh, the creators we work with, and that's one because I want to know what they're like, but and I really enjoy them. But but also we want to we want to speak from experience and say, yeah, this is a this is an awesome game, and, and be able to kind of champion uh, for these creators. That's cool. That's cool. FM. I mean, this has been fascinating to me. As I say, we're always interested in kind of gently kind of filling in the different pieces of the puzzle with regards to, you know, we got a lot of creators listening. We got a lot of first time creators listening. We got a lot of guys who are currently sitting with a table of white pieces and black pieces of paper <laughs> and some cello tape over a dice who are, you know, making those first commitments yep. to kind of generating a game kind of thing. So, um, so I mean, just finding out about, you know, you're just your thoughts in general is always, is always in it. Because I'm a nosy person. I mean, as I said at the beginning. Um, Makes you good at what you're doing, I people, guess. <laughs> if people, um, if people are interested in finding out more, um, where do you exist on kind of like the interweb nets, Chandler? I, probably the best place uh, where someone would get in touch with uh, with us is on our um, on our website, crowdox.com. Mm-hmm. So it's crowdox. Some people have kind of slaughtered the name, but it's the whole idea of crowdox. Uh, you know, yeah. we try to we try to bear the load like an ox would, right? So the, the that's kind of the that's where the name actually. And the, I suppose the, crowd, full, crowd full donkey dis- would sound ridiculous. <laughs> That's that's definitely part of it. Full disclosure, actually, the name originally came from the fact that it was the shortest URL. <laughs> it was really? the uh, the easiest and shortest URL that uh, that we could uh, find that worked, and you know, then we kind of played with that a little bit. And we're like, oh, yeah, Ox, you know, they help people, they help bear the burdens. But anyway, of course, there's some people that think you're being clever because you've got the name Crowd and then put an X in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh, scenario. But yeah, so they could go to our website. They could reach out there. Um, yeah. They can also... Yeah. Um, most of my interactions happen to be through Facebook. So I am on Facebook actively um, connecting with people and, and happy to help and trying to jump in those communities and groups where people ask questions. So, um, but yeah, that would be the best way. And they can also email us directly, sales at crowdox.com. Um, cool. So whatever works. Awesome. Awesome. Um, thanks for that. What we'll do is we shall make sure we put those links in the show notes so we've got notes to show. Um, if you want to keep an eye on what we are up to, then jump on to go to interwebs and type in we're not wizards and you shall find us on twitter and facebook and we're on instagram and we're on youtube 
And if you want to read some of our words, you can go to wearenotwizards.blogspot.com. If you want to find a website, you can find us on wearenotwizards.com. If you want to chuck us a buck to keep help keep the lights on, then go to patreon.com forward slash wearenotwizards. Um, you can find us on various different places in terms of podcast catchers. So you've got Stitcher and Player FM and Acast and Spreaker and Podknife. And you can also actually find us on Podbean as well. If you've liked what you've listened or enjoyed or found it interesting like I have, um, please go to Apple Podcasts and consider dropping us a subscription if you like us even more consider dropping us a rating or a review. And as we say, if you are going to give us a review, don't give us 10 stars, because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us one star, because it makes us cry. Give us five, because it's in the middle, and it's average. And we're just a little, just a little bit average. But the gentleman who's not been average tonight is the rather wonderful, very interesting Mr. Chandler Copenhaver. Thank you very much for being on, sir. Hey, appreciate been... being here. Um, there's only two more things to do. The first thing is to um, remember that we are many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Chandler? Not yet. One day. Don't. I can edit this whole thing. So all you say through the whole show is <laughs> you love Pledge You love Pledge Manager. You love Pledge. No, I'm not gonna do that. That'd be that would be nice. It would be it's a threat though, it's a viable threat. Um <laughs> and, and the um the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Chandler, say goodbye, Chandler. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe, roll sixes dot com. And um as I said, um, it's always nice to find kind of fill in the last piece of the puzzle and uh, the tabletop industry is becoming an industry. It's not just about an idea in somebody's bedroom. It's about how you get your art done, how you create your game, how you get it manufactured and also how you take care of those lovely backers once the campaign is finished. Um, but until the next time, goodbye. Wizard is never late. Is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to.